Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. back with Bruce Van Orden, and we're talking about his biography of W.W. Phelps. After the Missouri War, W.W. ends up in Ohio. Do we know why? At the end of the war and the siege of Far West, Joseph Smith was turned over to Samuel Lucas, the acting general of the Missouri forces, illegally because it was supposed to be just a peace parley. There were peace negotiators. W.W. W. Phelps was one of the negotiators. As mythology developed and some historic histories were written that made it look like these peace negotiators were traitors, where they absolutely just turned Joseph Smith and, the, and Hiram and others over to Lucas. And Lucas, of course, had bloodthirsty designs. He wanted to actually kill Joseph Smith. It was made to look as a traitorous act, a treasonous act. When Joseph was later then incarcerated in Liberty Jail all those weeks and months, he wrote a letter to the saints who had gone in exile to Adams County, Quincy, in Illinois. In that letter, he expressed his displeasure why he had to be there because of traitorous voices, and he included uh, Phelps in that. And that was enough for a conference to be held in Quincy in late March 1839. And it was by a motion of members of the High Council to Brigham Young, who is now the leader of the saints in exile, that these so-called traitors needed to be excommunicated. And Phelps was one of about 10 who were excommunicated officially at that time. Phelps stayed in Far West, could not make a living any longer because of the abandonment of the whole community and made his way first to St. Louis with his uh, wife and family, and then they went on to Ohio. Sally Phelps, his wife, had family members, brothers, sisters, living in Ohio, and it appears that they went there to live among the family. They end up living in and near Dayton. We have some letters from Phelps to John Whitmer, who was still back in Missouri, showing the utter poverty that the Phelps family found itself in, as well as their disease-ridden family, and he was in such despair at this point. Then along came two members of the Twelve, oddly Orson Hyde, who had repented, and John Page, on their way to uh, the east and on to Jerusalem, where they were to have a mission. And they spent some days in Dayton, and they ran into Phelps, and they all agreed that this would be something where Phelps could plead for mercy and for forgiveness and could he come back as a prodigal son and just be a servant? He wrote a beautiful letter. Joseph Smith wrote back a beautiful letter. It's, uh, all these stories are more well-known. And he was accepted back into the faith. But he stayed in Ohio as a representative of the times and seasons, actually, that had been established by Don Carlos Smith, Joseph Smith's younger brother, as a new periodical. And he knew that he had been called on a mission earlier, and apparently this was something he wanted to fulfill. So he went uh, back to New York and spent some time with his parents and brothers and sisters in trying to reconvert them. He had some baptisms. 
And upon completion of that in the uh, summer of 1841, he, he came back into the church in the summer of 1840, and then one year later determined to make their way by commandment, actually. All the Ohio Saints were asked to come to Nauvoo and made their way to Nauvoo with a full intent to be an assistant to Don Carlos Smith in the Times and Seasons. Turns out, however, that Don Carlos died at age 25, and other people in the Times and Seasons uh, took Phelps in, but the Quorum of the Twelve and Joseph Smith wanted to have complete control over the Times and Seasons and bought out the other people, and it was an official publication then of the church starting in early 1842, and at this point Phelps became the acting editor of the Times and Seasons. Before we talk about the important role that you just mentioned as editor of the Time and Seasons, I hate to harp on this, but I want to go back to Missouri one more time. Okay. I felt really sympathetic towards W.W. W. Phelps' complaints. And I felt, after I had read all the details of what went down in Missouri, that this letter that we all know about, that W.W. Phelps wrote was wonderful. You mentioned W.W. Phelps had problems with pride, but in this instance, he was very humble. I almost felt like I wanted to hear an apology from Joseph as well, and I didn't get one. I think it's an offhanded uh, apology. He accepted him back with open arms, and he was less likely to do that with some of the others. It's true that uh, there were attempts to bring back Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, but not nearly uh, with as much enthusiasm as he seemed to accept Phelps back. I think that Joseph began to realize that uh, Phelps had been mishandled. He didn't seem to have any particular beef with him, like maybe Oliver Cowdery. There was some real bad blood there. Absolutely, you're right. And as soon as Phelps arrived, he got right into the inner circle of all the discussion items, all the discussion items that took place with Joseph Smith and his advisors, late 1841 through the death of Joseph Smith. So he was right in the middle, and he couldn't have been brought in that way had he not been forgiven completely, trusted, and perhaps even some kind of acknowledgement that he wasn't as guilty as some of these other people. Let's talk about what a nominal editor is. That is really perplexing. It really surprised me to find out how much Phelps was involved in the Times and Seasons, the Wasp and the Nauvoo Neighbor, the three uh, newspapers that the church printed in the printing office in Nauvoo. Joseph had actually used all sorts of scribes all along the way. We know that Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris were, and Emma Smith were involved with the Book of Mormon. We know that others were involved as scribes with those early revelations. And when Joseph started to keep a journal, he dictated it. He didn't write it himself. The big difference between what Phelps was to do in Nauvoo in representing Joseph Smith but as a nominal editor, not the actual named editor, as Joseph Smith was the named editor, was very similar to what other scribes had done, Phelps himself even, as a scribe in Kirtland. But this was different in that the material that was ascribed to Joseph Smith but was actually written by Phelps was published at the time, whereas the journals were not published at the time. However, the journals have now been published in the Joseph Smith papers, and we recognize that the actual wording in many instances was put together by such folks as Oliver Cowdery, Willard Richards, and, and other scribes. This is different in the sense it was done in the official publication. 
But Phelps was the man who knew printing. He was the man who knew how to uh, give directions as a foreman to the hands who worked in the printing office. He was the one who knew how to write. He was the one who knew how to put out a newspaper. He was the one who knew the doctrines of Joseph Smith, and therefore he was able to represent the church very well, very completely and with excellent words and vocabulary, but he did not take credit for it. His name was not there. And that's one of my major discoveries is that it was Phelps who did the writing and the putting out of the newspaper. It wasn't Joseph Smith. It wasn't John Taylor. It wasn't Wilford Woodruff. Phelps had a gift that came in handy as a newspaper man. He was verbose to an extreme. However many newspaper writers were, he was not alone in that attribute. True. But as I read how much he had written in these three newspapers and read excerpts that you included in the biography, I loved how it gave you an insight into what the saints were seeing and ostensibly believing and thinking about and talking about. It was stuff that Phelps had put before their eyes. There's this argument that Phelps was the nominal editor, but that Joseph overlooked everything, read everything, and he would have corrected something if Phelps had misspoken. How do you feel about this argument? The Prophet Joseph Smith was exceptionally busy in those months of 1842 when his name was put at the boiler head uh, as editor of the Times and Seasons. For about five of those weeks, he was actually hiding and couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the putting out of the newspaper. On other occasions, he was marrying about 12 different women. He was involved in politics. He was involved in setting up masonry, setting up the endowment for the first time, running the church itself as the major property manager of who got property in Nauvoo. And he was sick. His wife was sick. He visited outlying settlements away from Nauvoo. He was so busy, he couldn't possibly have even run the newspaper office. He even, according to his journal, which was kept very minutely at that time by Willard Richards and William Clayton, it only identifies five times in two months, May and June, when he even visited the printing office, and that was at night under protection, so he wouldn't be kidnapped away by people who were trying to extradite him to Missouri. And his only purpose in going to the printing office was to actually check on newspaper articles that were being written about him that the newspaper office had received from newspapers in the East. He really didn't overlook the day-to-day -day operations of the printing office. That was left to Phelps. It's altogether possible that if something had come out in the times and seasons that Joseph Smith did not like when he had a chance to read it on his own when they came out, he could have made some corrections. He didn't. There was a time after he was dead when Phelps had said something in the name of the editor at that time, John Taylor. He actually did it in the name of John Taylor, and it ended up being wrong, and Brigham Young and and John Taylor had to make corrections. And then at that point, they said, well, Phelps wrote this. We're sorry, uh, but here's the real story. So there certainly could have been corrections made if necessary. I believe that Joseph and Phelps were so much of the same mind and that Phelps visited him almost daily, either at the Joseph Smith residence or as a neighbor or in other ways in council meetings and therefore knew the mind and thought of Joseph Smith and he reflected it, but with his verbose nature in a writing style that was Phelps and not Joseph Smith's. 
looking over these articles, you got to realize these are not 500 word blogs on the internet. I found them tedious, dense. And you only only saw a small fraction. That's true. (laughs) Theologically intense, definitely skim worthy if you're being very busy like Joseph Absolutely. What surprised you most about Phelps' tenure as editor and his time in Nauvoo working with Joseph Smith? What surprised me most is that he was the one who did it, that he had uh, such capacity to do it with three different newspapers. He apparently was so talented that he could write and then supervise the putting into type all of this material and to get it out on a biweekly basis and, in the case of the Nauvoo neighbor, on a weekly basis. What an amazing achievement. He apparently was tireless and just loved doing this and loved to write and see his work in print. And it was at a time also when the church had so many enemies, particularly Thomas Sharp of the Warsaw Signal, 20 miles to the south, and he had verbal battles with Sharp in through the newspapers, primarily at this point, the, uh, the Wasp and the Nauvoo neighbor. It's just stunning what he was able to come out with and essentially to reflect the actual belief of the leadership of the church. This is different than the scribes that Joseph used throughout his ministry. He is actually taking a topic and writing an entire discourse on his own. Is that correct? That is correct. In that year that Joseph Smith was the editor, there were several editorials, about two dozen in number, that were lengthy, as you say, dense and intense, several pages long, Hardly a paragraph structure at all, however. The sentences went on and on and on without a period. He had double dashes and semicolons. Anyway, these writings were impressive, but they were in the name of Joseph Smith with E.D. put at the end. And some of them were about the Holy Ghost or baptism or baptism for the dead or the government of God. One that was the longest and is frequently cited today is Try the Spirits, where persons in the church were able to determine through this advice given in this article, Try the Spirits, how to differentiate between those things that came from Satan and those things that came from God. I have in my hands right here the book Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith that was compiled by Apostle Elder Joseph Fielding Smith in 1938. This book, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, is cited by teachers right and left. I remember when I was a religion teacher at BYU, if you got something from teachings. It was just as valid as anything from the Holy Scriptures. Well, the 1842 entries in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith include several of these articles, almost in full, somewhat edited, put into paragraph structure, I guess, but many pages long, as if they were the actual writings of Joseph Smith. They were in his name, but now we're saying that they were ghostwritten by W.W. Phelps. The scope of the ghostwriting expanded beyond the newspaper, though. Things we traditionally attribute to Joseph Smith, for instance, like the Wentworth letter. The Wentworth letter was in the Times and Seasons, though, in the early days of Joseph Smith's nominal editorship. The Wentworth letter has a great deal of history, particularly of the early days of Joseph Smith's youth and his first vision and the Book of Mormon. And, of course, Phelps had nothing to do with that, so he would have taken down the history of Joseph Smith, probably as it was dictated to him, he probably edited it. But then there were extensive paragraphs about the history in Missouri where 
Phelps was there and experienced these things firsthand, and Joseph Smith, of course, was not there. Toward the end of the Wentworth letter, we have the Articles of Faith, and many of the origins of some of those articles came from earlier writings, as from Orson Pratt. But I believe that Phelps has something to do with the editing of those articles, and maybe even the composition of 11, 12, and 13. Just before the Articles of Faith, we have a paragraph that is used all the time by missionaries and others in the church to show Joseph Smith's vision about missionary work, but it sounds like Phelps, and we know that Phelps put together the Wentworth letter and another edition of that history for another publication a year later. Therefore, I believe that the actual writing of this paragraph that I'm going to quote to you now is a Phelps composition. Our missionaries are going forth to different nations, and in Germany, Palestine, New Holland, the East Indies, and other places, the standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. That kind of phrasing is how Phelps phrased himself. And one of the things that tipped me off is the word calumny. I don't see that word ever in any other place that we know that Joseph Smith was the orator. Many of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith come from his orations, and that's legitimate from him. However, Phelps frequently, in all of his writings, used forms of that word, calumny or calumniate. He used it all the time. He liked it. It's an uncommon word. I didn't even know what it meant when I first read it, but he used it all the time. That tipped me off. This must have been his writing. I have to look it up every time I see it. It's not something we use all the time. This brings up an interesting point. How did you go about identifying what Joseph Smith wrote and what W.W. Phelps wrote? In operating as the de facto editor of the Times and Seasons, whenever Joseph Smith gave an oration and someone like William Clayton or Wilford Woodruff or Willard Richards or maybe some others kept a record of his orations in Nauvoo and nearby towns, then that rendition was placed in the Times and Seasons. And we can see his methodology, the way he spoke, his style. Well, that's fine. And it was identified as Joseph Smith. There were other uh, uh, official letters that came from Brigham Young and the Twelve. But when there was just a discussion of what was going on, I could see Phelps's style because I had become acquainted with it from his many writings in the Evening and the Morning Star in Missouri and the Messenger and Advocate in Ohio. And so I went through every single article in the Times and Seasons, The Wasp and the Nauvoo Neighbor, and in a conservative way, probably not a completely accurate way, but in a conservative way, I identified what I considered to be Phelps's writing, particularly in 1842 when Joseph Smith was the editor and we had the, the signature of Joseph Smith or the signature ED at the end. I asked myself, is is this something Joseph would have written, or is this something that Phelps would have written? And it became obvious that, yes, in every case, it's Phelps who wrote those. 
Do you feel that after reading all of those samples of writings, you can identify Phelps's writing pretty easily? I can. I sometimes thought, well, this sounds a lot like him. Let me check. And I end up finding out that a few different things were written by other people who were using some of that same style. And so I asked, well, okay, could it be someone else and some of these others? But there, were, there was no one else around during that critical period of 1842 other than John Taylor. And I have looked carefully to see if I think that John Taylor did the writing and definitely come to the conclusion that he was not the writer. He was not himself there most of the time in the printing office, even though he was known as the associate editor. Let's move on to 1844. I was unaware of what a large role Phelps played in the Expositor incident. Can you tell us what happened in May, June of 1844? The Nauvoo Expositor was a product of those who had created their own church in response to primarily the polygamy question, but also the authority question in Nauvoo. And the leaders of that group of Reformed Church were William Law, who had been a member of the First Presidency, after all, a couple members of the Nauvoo High Council, and then a number of other people like Wilson Law. They were getting nowhere in, in their arguments to get rid of polygamy and with Joseph Smith, and so they created their own church. There were some among them that were even plotting to destroy the official church and to do Joseph Smith in. They decided that they would get a printing press, and they had many allies who were anti-Mormons in the area who helped them get a printing press. They published the first edition, which turned out to be the only one, of the Nauvoo Expositor in early June of 1844. The city council responded fairly quickly in making a rule to get rid of this based on legal arguments that Phelps had put together. Phelps had been identified as the major legal advisor to Joseph Smith on all things pertaining to the law. And he concluded from his study of Blackstone and others that that newspaper could be considered a, quote, nuisance, unquote, and therefore could be destroyed. It was a flimsy argument to go and destroy it, but that was based on some legal precedent. It was destroyed. Phelps was on the city council. He was at Joseph Smith's right hand as the legal advisor, like I said. And when the arguments were made in the city council as to what to do with the expositor, he made the challenge, we've got to do this. This is required of us if we're going to be true and faithful to the purposes of God. He made it so plain, and he said, uh, will you say yes to what I just said? And they said yes, and they, it was right after that that uh, they went and destroyed the press. This led, of course, to the eventual arrest of all those who participated, not only Joseph Smith and Hiram, but many others of the city council and who were advisors to Joseph Smith. Phelps was indicted, and he was one of the uh, 20 or so people who accompanied Joseph and Hiram to Carthage in June then, uh, later June, in 1844. And uh, after a few days, uh, the prisoners were left unprotected, and we know the story of the assassination. Joseph and Hiram are ultimately killed in Carthage. You mentioned that Phelps was a member of the city council. What was his church calling at this time? Do you know? Well, there was no division between church and state. So anything he was doing was for the church. And Nauvoo was a city-state of Mormons. 
and only Mormons were essentially made welcome there or those who were highly sympathetic. And then the Council of Fifty was established, which was so very important too, and Phelps was a prominent member of that council. So his church calling was what he did in publishing the newspapers, a member of the Council of Fifty, and of course at Joseph Smith's side in the mayor's court and in the city council. The death of the prophet and his brother leave a power vacuum in Nauvoo, and Phelps steps in to help the saints who are just distraught and don't know what's going to happen next, because although Phelps doesn't have an ecclesiastical calling like an apostle, law is out of the church, Sidney Rigdon, the other counselor in the First Presidency, is out of town, And the apostles are all campaigning for president or on missions out of town. So there's no one there to help the saints. I did not realize what a pivotal role he played to steer them and calm them, even by choosing the words that we use now to discuss what happened to Joseph and Hiram. He was the first person to write about the martyrdom in the times and seasons. Talk about the pivotal role he played in the coming succession crisis. You say they were all gone, the apostles. Two had remained behind by assignment, Willard Richards and John Taylor. John Taylor was nearly killed himself and had two months of complete recovery before he could do anything that he did recover. But Willard Richards was the only apostle in good health. By this time, three years after he had started his work with the Times and Seasons, I believe that most of the Latter-day Saints had come to realize, not early on, but they had come to realize how close he was to Joseph Smith and to Willard Richards, who was a, a chief assistant. Well... The word came back about the assassination. Phelps spoke to the Nauvoo Legion, urging them to be under complete control and to be peaceful and not to fight back. It's interesting that he had that assignment. He had everything to do with the determination of how to bury and protect the bodies of Joseph and Hiram. And then at the funeral services, he was the orator. And no one seemed to disagree with that. He was, everyone knew that he was around and an important figure. Together, he and Willard Richards, for about a month, did everything they could to keep the church in some semblance of order in this feeling of complete despair that you described. And they wrote lots of articles in the newspapers that proclaimed peace and keeping under civil control. He pretty much ran the city council for a few weeks until the Twelve Apostles were all back. Gradually, they started to come back. Parley P. Pratt made it within just three weeks. He was senior in the apostleship to Willard Richards, and he seemed to take over, but it was a group of four men, Parley P. Pratt, Willard Richards, W.W. Phelps, and John Taylor on the sideline, who signed their names to directions to the saints during that period before all the apostles got back. It was August 6, 1844, when Brigham Young and most of the other apostles finally arrived back, they found out that there was a plan to install Sidney Rigdon as the uh, new leader of the church. This was being done with William Marks, president of the Nauvoo State, kind of leading that effort. 
who agreed with Sidney Rigdon, and it appears that their reasoning was that they were both opposed to plural marriage and they wanted to establish their leadership. Well, August 8th was uh, the big day when Rigdon stood before the people and in an incoherent manner tried to lay out his case that he should be the one who would lead, but he didn't do it effectively. Brigham Young said, we'll meet this afternoon and we'll get all the people here and we'll make sure that both sides are held. And Brigham Young gave a very powerful address that afternoon, laying out the case of the 12 apostles as the true leadership quorum. They had the keys, he made it plain. He gave an opportunity to Sidney Rigdon to speak, and Sidney, I guess, felt he couldn't. So he asked Phelps to speak in his behalf. Well, Phelps stood up and spoke on behalf of the 12 apostles and said they have the keys and Rigdon is the one who is mixed up. And so that helped clinch the day when a vote was then taken by the public that the 12 apostles should lead. An interesting thing, the public made that determination at first. Before the saints left Nauvoo, a new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants came out. Joseph had participated in editing this before his death. Tell us about when that came out and what was included in there. It was going to come out under Joseph Smith's full cooperation, of course, but he was killed. Wilford Woodruff assumed the leadership in getting it done, probably under the direction of Brigham Young. At his side, of course, was Phelps, uh, and he was going to print it. Well, they did print it. It came out later in 1844. At the tail end of this new edition, they put a statement about the martyrdom, which is now section 135 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was not identified as a revelation or an official part of Scripture, but then when subsequent editions came out, they, the leaders decided, okay, we'll just put this in with the section number. It's been historically thought that John Taylor, who was a witness of the martyrdom, actually wrote it. But there is no historical evidence that he wrote it. Perhaps he, along with Willard Richards and, and others, helped Phelps compose it, and it was written. It looks like it was largely Phelps who wrote it. Why do we have the notion that John Taylor wrote it? Because he was a witness of the event, I Is guess. Oh, he... and another reason would have to be that in our histories, we've always identified John Taylor as the superintendent of the printing office, and he did have the authority over the printing office. He became the editor of the newspapers after Joseph Smith gave up his nominal editorship. I show in the biography that his actual work was not so much, but people forgot that and, and didn't know that. And therefore, as the histories were written, and they say, well, John Taylor, he's the editor of the Times and Seasons. He must have been in charge. He must have written it. I actually run into uh, compilations that were written in recent decades where they quote something from the Nauvoo neighbor, and they say, John Taylor said this. The only reason they say that is because it was edited officially by John Taylor. Brigham Young becomes leader of the church as president of the Twelve after the secession crisis. The big push here is to finish the temple. That's what they become obsessed with. I also thought that W.W. Phelps continued to work very closely with Brigham Young like he had worked with Joseph Smith. I would say absolutely the case. For one thing, on that big day of August 8th, he sustained the 12. And then there was an open court or trial for Sidney Rigdon, and it was the testimony of W.W. W. Phelps explaining the nature of the revelations that Joseph Smith 
had regarding Sidney Rigdon that he explained that helped make it legitimate. Then the Council of Fifty was reconstituted by Brigham Young. Phelps reassumed his pivotal role in the Council of Fifty as they made their plans to evacuate Illinois. But they could not do that in the timetable of the Lord as they saw it until they had finished the Nauvoo Temple. When it came to preparing for the endowment, Phelps was right involved with that. The various roles that were part of the structure of the endowment ceremony were assigned to members of the Twelve, Brigham Young playing a key role. But then Phelps was also assigned to play a key role in the endowment ceremony as the serpent, the tempter, the one who would tempt Adam and Eve. He played that role throughout the endowment ceremonies in Nauvoo. And through Utah, right? And into Utah, for sure. As I was reading about the relationship between Brigham Young and W.W. Phelps in Nauvoo and in Utah, it almost felt to me like Brigham Young had taken him under his wing even though he had these quirky personality traits. And later in life, he became a little bit senile. Brigham Young watched over W.W. Phelps. My interpretation is that uh, Brigham Young recognized how close Phelps was to Joseph Smith. He needed him with all of his historical knowledge and all of the documents that he had access to, to keep identifying the legitimacy of the role of the Twelve Apostles. I think he felt he owed it to Phelps. Now, Phelps made some mistakes uh, as they started to go west. He was assigned to pick up a printing press, which he obtained in Boston, and came back with three wives at his side that he had, had sealed to him improperly and without permission. So Brigham Young had to deal with that, but he dealt with it in a mild manner and brought Phelps back into full fellowship and then used him uh, in uh, uh, Salt Lake City. We've got to remember that Brigham, one of Brigham Young's key helpers, though, was his second counselor, Willard Richards, and Willard Richards was also very fond of W.W. Phelps. We can definitely tell that in their correspondence one with another. And when Willard Richards was placed in as the nominal and chief editor of the Deseret News as it started, he couldn't oversee it on a daily basis. As had happened in Nauvoo, Phelps was put over the Deseret News on a daily basis as somewhat of a junior editor, I guess, but he put it out. He put out the newspaper, and that was with Willard Richards. So the First Presidency did like Phelps and used him. What was interesting to me is after Missouri, W.W. Phelps really didn't have a high ecclesiastical calling as we would label it right now. But right. he was so intimately involved, not only in the direction the church was moving, the activities, but also what the saints were seeing as far as being educated with theology and attitudes of the church because he was writing the newspaper. That's absolutely correct. We've got to remember that the Council of Fifty was just as significant a leadership body as the Council of Twelve, and Phelps was part of that. It's only come to light in more recent years how significant it was, but it was important, and the Council of Fifty was used in the early days in Deseret as well. And so he did have a position there. Even today, though, the Church, through its public affairs and its publications, multiple ones, uses other people who end up uh, there's a correlation committee and, and many others who have immense influence, even though they may not be official members of the 
hierarchy. Time precludes us from going into every little detail of his activities in Utah, unfortunately. I will save that for listeners to read for themselves from your book. What do you think was the most important contribution or interesting detail about W.W.'s later years in Utah? I'd say the most important was the Deseret Almanac, which came out annually from 1852, with just a couple of exceptions, clear through 1865. In it, he put lots of poetry together that was theological in nature and talked about the multiplicity of gods and goddesses, and mother in heaven, the idea of multiple worlds, that people such as us would become gods and have our own worlds. He taught people in the pages of the Deseret Almanac that came out annually, and almost everybody would have had their copy, and it's something they would hold on to. The Deseret News would come out every other week, and people would read it, I suppose, but then put it aside and not read it again, whereas the Almanac would be there on an annual basis, and they could keep referring back to it. In fact, they would want to because it had some very basic information like an encyclopedia would have that they would need. So it looks like the Almanac was his big thing, and he thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, he didn't use anyone else to contribute to it. He could do it all by himself. Uh, So we have all those writings that come from him in the Deseret Almanac. And this theology about the worlds that he'd ostensibly gotten from the Book of Abraham influenced the theology in the church for over a century or century and a half. The uh, famous hymn, If We Could High Tekolob, was written actually as an honorarium to Brigham Young. It was published in the Desert News to Brigham Young in 1856, at the same time that Brigham Young himself was experimenting with his own cosmology ideas. And sure enough, Brigham and Orson Pratt, too, spoke about these worlds and the nature of the universe about the same time that Phelps was doing it. They certainly coincided, and my hunch is that Phelps helped spur them on. Oh, I wish we had time to talk about the Deseret Alphabet, because it just shows how much those Mormons in Utah considered themselves a unique society and how they didn't feel like they had to conform to the rest of the United States. It's fascinating. I'd heard of the Deseret Alphabet, but I had no idea that they kept working with it for so long. And published things in it. Yes. And it was Phelps who, of course, was the publisher of these little tracts and, and, and excerpts in the Deseret News and the Deseret As W.W. Phelps got older, his eccentricities amplified. He became senile, and he had a difficult time providing for his family, which is not a story that was unusual in 1860s, 1870s Utah. The economy was changing. Businessmen had come from uh, Britain as converts. They established businesses uh, on Main Street in Salt Lake City. Some of them ended up going against uh, Brigham Young and the church, the so-called Gobbyite movement. Brigham Young decided, we've got to run our own economy. We've got to do it according to business principles. I'll grant you that. So we'll set up our own system. It was the cooperative system, ZCMI and other things. Several people who had been living in a law of consecration manner in more frontier-like Salt Lake 
city in the 1850s, no longer had ways of earning money. And of course, Phelps was now into his 70s in the 1860s and losing his mind to boot. So he wrote several letters to uh, Brigham Young and some of his counselors asking for some kind of consideration. What can I do to earn more money? He even said, can you increase my salary as an endowment worker? I work in the endowment. I've been doing that faithfully. Can you increase my salary so I can take care of my three families? He had two other families through polygamy that he was caring for also. Many times in your biography, you refer to Joseph Smith as W.W.'s prophet hero. He loved Joseph. He loved the revelations. He especially loved one revelation that Joseph had pronounced on he and his wife regarding their death. Do you want to talk about that? When Phelps, along with the other Missouri brethren, were in Kirtland in 1835, Joseph Smith Sr., the patriarch, started giving blessings to all these Missouri brethren. And in it, he promised Phelps many wonderful things, including seeing the city of Enoch. But then two weeks later, Joseph Smith Jr. gave a special blessing on Phelps too. Phelps wrote down both of these blessings and referred back to them frequently, even in his later letters to Brigham Young. And particularly in the blessing slash revelation that Joseph Smith pronounced upon Phelps in September of 1835. It doesn't come out in the Doctrine and Covenants, but it's in the official histories, including the Joseph Smith papers. Phelps has promised that he will see the new city, and it was interpreted by him that he would never taste of death. It doesn't actually say that specifically, but he would go around in his later years, uh, somewhat senile, I guess, and brag that he would never die. I'm not going to die. He even wrote a, a poem in the 1850s in the Desert Almanac in which he said other people are going to have to suffer the tomb, but I won't. He was really happy with the idea. He was going to live into the millennium, and he felt that his wife was part of this too. And so what about this idea of never tasting of death? Contemporary people knew that he was going around making this statement, but they also had sympathy for him as kind of a doddering old fellow who walked around town who wasn't in full capacity of his capacities any longer. Well, it turns out that when he did die in March of 1872, he had been senile for about five or six years, and a contemporary observer said he didn't taste of death because he didn't know what was even going on. And then in the case of his wife, two years later, she was walking on the streets of Salt Lake City, and a roof started to collapse right near where she was walking and slid down and hit her in the neck and caused instantaneous death. Therefore, she was also spared of tasting of death. And so that's an interesting anecdote that people bring up. He firmly believed that he, he would believed. not taste of death. That millennial view colored everything he wrote in the Times and Seasons, the Deseret Almanac. Absolutely. And maybe contributed to his zeal and ardor for Zion. For sure. Before when we talked about Phelps being a ghostwriter in Nauvoo, we didn't ever touch on why Joseph would allow him to sign his name or what that would show about Joseph Smith's character. 
in WW's 1852 Deseret Almanac, Phelps introduced himself as K.J. for King's Jester, which is a little eccentric. He considered this his role received through calling by Joseph Smith, King's Jester and Devil, or the Serpent in the Temple. In what ways did W.W. W. Phelps function as a King's Jester for both Joseph Smith and later Brigham Young. Many people have thought that this was absolutely quirky to call himself King's Jester, maybe identifying himself as some kind of an elaborate joke or something. But in a letter to Brigham Young, Phelps listed several callings he had received from Joseph Smith or through revelations that are even identified in the Doctrine and Covenants. And at the end of the list, he said, I have been appointed king's jester or the devil by joseph smith and i guess the devil part would be the role he played in the significant endowment ceremony i struggled with this myself what is a king's jester i studied what king's jesters did in the royal courts in europe and found out that they were actually appointed to be sort of a person who would speak the mind and will of the king and of royalty in a way that would not necessarily be blamed upon the king, but would show the actual feelings of royalty and pronounce them in a way that would be firm and perhaps acceptable, but could never go really back to uh, be blamed upon people like Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. In answer to part of your question, why would he be trusted. I feel that when he started writing in behalf of Joseph Smith in 1842, it was a mutual agreement between him, the Twelve, and Joseph Smith that he would not be identified. They wanted to show that the Times and Seasons was an official church periodical and that it represented what the church believed and taught officially. And Phelps was a recent apostate and in the minds of many people probably would be a bad name. And I think that they agreed that they would not use his name. As I have said, I, I believe that he came to be trusted by the people by the time that Joseph Smith was assassinated. We've mentioned W.W. W. Phelps' verbosity, but he was also articulate, something that Joseph Smith didn't share as a gift. Do you think that Joseph Smith might have wanted to sound like W.W. W. Phelps in these articles? Yes, and particularly as it pertained to languages. And several of the articles dating back even to Missouri and Ohio have to do with language facility. And frequently, many of the articles that Phelps Ghost wrote for Joseph included multilingual phrases. And Joseph wanted to show that he was interested in ancient languages. He did make a, an attempt to, to study Hebrew and Greek and German and, and other things, but didn't have time to become a master of them. Well, Phelps felt he was more of a master. And in behalf of Joseph Smith, he tried to show these abilities in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. I had several takeaways from this biography in your body of research. You know, because we've spoken in the past, that I didn't really have a positive attitude towards W.W. W. Phelps. I would say even that I approached the book with a hostile attitude. I came away grateful and charitable towards W.W. W. Phelps. What takeaways did you have from your research? 
Every significant person in any form of history, be it our nation, our community, our world, some of the heroes, they all have different personality traits, and they cannot be identified in just one way. Think of Martin Luther King or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. They're not just one-dimensional. Well, Phelps is certainly not one-dimensional either. And it is important that we try to see him from all the different aspects. We can have feelings for him. We can recognize what he was trying to do at the time, which was a very common thing to do at the time. We can recognize his eccentricities. We can be uplifted by his poetry and his hymns, as I emphasize in different ways, too. We haven't talked about hymns, but he certainly was a great hymn writer. And that has inspired so many people over the years, certainly me. We just try to look at the full person. Who is the real W.W. Phelps? Thank you, Bruce. This has been wonderful. I've loved your book, loved talking with you. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.